thank you, God, for today. Um, and just thank you for what you can do in our lives today, God. Uh, just pray, Lord, that we would, we would clear our minds um, of everything else that's, that's bothering us or, or coming into our hearts, Lord. And I just pray that we would uh, just hear what you have to say, God, and that our lives would be changed. So it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12. And while you're turning there, um, let's present a couple of people uh, here in our family that I uh, would like you to pray for today. Um, first is Tom Hensley. Um, Tom's mother passed away this week. Uh, so pray for Tom and his family as they deal with that. The, those of you who don't know, the uh, visitation and services will be 10 to 2 um, tomorrow at Roselawn. Yes. Okay. Okay, 10 to 12 for visitation with service to follow. Um, so please be in prayer for Tom and his family. Also, um, Alex Pierce, who we know as AP, um, he teaches our elementary youth group on, um, on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. And um, his, his 20-year-old cousin um, was killed in a tragic accident at work this week. Um, and that side of the family has now lost two uncles and a cousin in a matter of about seven months. Um, and so they're reeling and, and he's reeling and uh, I'm trying to be a light for that, for that family. So please um, be in prayer, especially today. The funeral is today. Um, and um, Mark and Tracy are on vacation this week, but they came back early from their vacation to go down to French Lake and be with him because that's just the kind of people they are. Um, but it's going to be a really difficult day, so please uh, lift them up in prayers today as well. But this morning, like I said, we're going to be Matthew 12, if you want to mark there. Um, and as a parent for this, um, I noticed that as a parent, I've found myself saying the following phrase a lot lately. I've said, had you? You've had enough. You see, my daughter has just been obsessed with blueberries lately. I don't know where this came from, but it's the first thing that she asks for when she wakes up, and it's the last thing she asks for before she goes to sleep at night. Uh, it's borderline insane when she gets on these kicks, and it's humorous to watch the progression of her requests, because it didn't take her long to learn that with each passing request, her chances of getting what she wants decreases. And so she always opened with the standard, can I have some blueberries? And so once she's finished off round one, whatever I give us, she'll regress to, Daddy, may I have some blueberries, please? She knows I like it when she remembers to say please, and then I'll know when she's wrapped those up because she'll come up to me and say something like, Daddy, I love you so much, and she'll give me a hug, and then she'll say real softly, can I have some more blueberries? And of course, I'll just look at her at this point and shake my head and say, boy, you are your mother's daughter, aren't you? <laughs> you see, even though blueberries are good for you, even though it's not like she's asking for something that will hurt her. They still cost money, and you can still eat too much, so at some point, either myself or her mother will just have to say, you know what, you've had enough. There'll be no more today. In almost every relationship between an authority and a subordinate, these kind of conversations happen, and sometimes we have these with God, where we ask and we ask and we ask, and in his wisdom and love and grace, he looks at the entirety of the situation, he says to us, you know what, you've been given enough. And I fear that too often we look for something new from God, a new blessing or a fresh anointing or a unique experience. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with requesting those from him, uh, I wonder from time to time if we just need to remind ourselves what he's already done. 
See, what strikes me is every time that I tell Hattie that she cannot have more blueberries, her reaction is based totally on the fact that there isn't more coming. Her reaction has no level of awareness or gratitude for all that she's received already. And sometimes, right about the point I'm getting really frustrated with this, I get that nudging from the Holy Spirit where God says to me, that's just the way you react to me sometimes. See, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is dealing with people who frustrate him. Um, For a large section of this chapter, the Pharisees and the religious leaders um, have been been questioning and testing Jesus' power. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, they have requests for Jesus. So look there with me. Verse 38 reads, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Now you see, Jesus is not opposed to request. In Scripture, we're told um, to approach the throne of grace boldly. Philippians tells us that in everything we should present our request to God. Jesus wasn't even opposed to people asking for a miracle. So you find all throughout the Gospels, sick people coming to him and asking for healing. We find people like the Roman centurion and the four men who carried their paralytic friend to Jesus on behalf of someone they cared about looking for a miracle. But you see, the heart behind this request in verse 38 is different. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're not genuinely seeking a movement of Jesus here. They aren't wanting to increase their faith. Just a few verses up in verse 24, they claim that Jesus actually got his power to perform miracles from Satan. So this is not a genuine request. There's a range of possibilities here. Maybe they're looking for a show. Maybe they want to prove that he's lost it if he can't do another. Maybe they want another sign in order for them to try to discredit it. But either way, Jesus sees right through them and right through their requests. And he doesn't just deny their request. He gives them an answer that cuts deeper than they expected. Look at what he says in verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, Jesus didn't much mince words, did he? Jesus is one of those guys that never really developed a habit of sugarcoating things. These guys ask him for a sign. He tells them that only a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. You can just sense the disciples watching this exchange and getting uncomfortable and thinking, man, Jesus, a simple no would have sufficed. But you see, Jesus is responding to a false sense of thinking that has been pervasive throughout humanity's existence. How many times have you heard people say, if I just saw a miracle, then I would believe in God? Jesus right here is saying, no, you wouldn't. Think about it. We ask questions like, why doesn't God just open up the heavens and show us who he is? Well, he did one better than that. He came here. He took the form of us. He stayed for over 30 years, and we still didn't believe. We ask, why doesn't God just talk to us? He did. And then he gave us his word, thousands of pages, answering every single important question you could ever ask, and we still didn't believe. We ask, how come I don't see any miracles in my day and in my life? And then we are there for the birth of our child. Our eyes catch a glimpse of a rainbow or a sunset, and we see things happen that we just can't explain, and we still don't believe. We need to understand this. Never in history has the act of miracles ever produced a lasting faith. It doesn't happen. And so, no, Jesus is not going to put on a show. He just won't do it. But he tells them there will be one sign. He calls it the sign of Jonah. He goes on to explain it in verse 40. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ will be the greatest sign ever given. 
It will be the sign of all signs. And guess what? This group still won't believe. They still won't. Consider Acts chapter 2. Peter stands in front of a large crowd in Jerusalem and he gives a sermon. This is after the resurrection of Christ. A sermon that basically said this. He says, you all saw Jesus. You saw him alive. You heard his teachings. You saw the miracles that God performed through him. Peter continues, and then you arrested him and you killed him on a cross and God raised him from the dead. And you all saw it with your own eyes. The sign of Jonah fulfilled. And Peter concludes, concludes the sermon by saying, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And at the close of this talk, thousands of people, people who traveled from all over to the great feast, were just undone. They asked what they should do in response to this truth. And they repented of their sins, and they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they were baptized into his church. And that was one group who was there that day. But there was another group who was also present that day. A group that didn't have to travel to Jerusalem because they'd been there the whole time. A group that had witnessed almost all of Jesus' ministry. A group that had orchestrated his death. A group who had also seen him alive. A group who, here in Matthew 12, asked Jesus to give them a sign. And yet there they stood with arms still folded, hearts that still were not broken, and wills that still refused to repent. Because even the sign of Jonah, even defeating death, was not enough to produce faith in them. Jesus, being God, knew this day was coming. And he tried to warn them about it. This is what he tells them in verse 41. He says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repeated at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. If you were here last summer, hopefully you remember that we took a journey through the book of Jonah. It's an incredible story. It's this tiny little book that foreshadows so much of the New Testament. But Jesus has mentioned it twice now, so we better review In the book of Jonah, there's a prophet by the name of Jonah who's called by God to go to a city known as Nineveh and preach to it because God says its evil has come before him. And Jonah originally disobeys, which leads to several events and several other sermons. But you see, the reason behind his disobedience is that Nineveh would invoke strong feelings in Jonah as a Jewish man. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire which were arch enemies of the Israelites. Nineveh was, a power, Nineveh was a powerful city, and it was evil, and it had a reputation that was apparently well-deserved for being a dark and vicious city. In the book of Nahum, in the Bible, we get this description of the city. The Bible tells us that Nineveh is a city of blood. It's a city that's full of lies. It says that Nineveh was enslaved by a harlot and her witchcraft, and that it had piles of dead. And Nineveh, the Bible says, was never without victims. You see, as an Israelite, to hear the word Nineveh would be like us today hearing the words Al-Qaeda. To an Israelite, Nineveh was a power that killed your children, enslaved your brother, and brutalized your sister. And yet in the book of Jonah, we find this incredible account in chapter 3. Because in verse 4 of Jonah 3, Jonah begins preaching that in 40 days the city of Nineveh will be overturned. And in verse 4, we find this key phrase where it says, The Ninevites believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. They didn't find Jonah's message moving. They weren't impressed with his homiletics in his sermon. They recognized the message as a word from God, and they believed God. 
And it started this incredible event, this citywide repentance and revival. The king himself issued a decree that all men and animals be covered with sackcloth, a sign of grieving. He commanded that the entire city fast. And then he said that everyone should give up all of their violence and all of their evil. And he doesn't do this in a manipulative way. Because when he says to do this, he says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will change his mind out of compassion, which also implies, who knows? Maybe he won't. Maybe it's too late. Because you see, true repentance is not repenting in order just to gain forgiveness. True repentance recognizes the truth behind what God says about us. Whether there's any guarantee of forgiveness or not. Though we know there is. So we have this incredible story of one man, one disobedient, unwilling prophet who gives this half-hearted sermon in an entire city previously marked by violence and evil, turn from their ways and repent and fall on their faces before God. And Jesus says that the generation, that generation of Ninevites will stand up at the judgment and condemn the generation that he's speaking to. Why? Because one who is greater than Jonah, one of the biggest understatements in the Bible, but one who is greater than Jonah is here, and yet they do not believe. They do not repent. They are not moved. See, there's this interesting flow throughout the Gospels that those of us who have been in the church of Jesus Christ for some time need to recognize and heed its warning. John opens his Gospel talking about the Word, that's Jesus. The Word becoming flesh. And right off the bat, in the opening of the book, he writes this line. He says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And then as you read through the entirety of John's gospel, you'll see these words being fulfilled because every Jewish man or woman who expresses faith in Jesus Christ before his resurrection, just keep reading in John and you will soon find out that their faith is shallow and weak and inauthentic. It's not real faith at all. But of the few scenarios in which Jesus relates to Gentiles, those outside of God's established people, it's the Gentiles who respond with the most authentic faith in the gospel. Then we have here in Matthew 12, Jesus saying that the men of Nineveh, the men who were marked by evil, the men who are identified by their violence, the men who seemingly had no good in them, the men who could be described as having nothing to do with God or his ways, Jesus says those men will rise up and condemn this generation of Israelites in Jesus' time. And why? Well, it's simple, really. They heard the word of God and they responded. The Israelites were given God himself. And they did not respond. They did not receive him. They did not believe. And you see, I believe that there's a warning in this story that we need to recognize. I think that Jesus is pointing to a risk that is very, very real in the lives of many who are here today. A few years ago, my family went on vacation to Colorado. Um, it didn't take me long to fall in love with the place. We spent four days in Estes Park hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park. But for three days before that... We stayed at the house of one of my cousins who lives in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And while we were there, we visited with family. We went to the Garden of Gods. We took a train up to the top of Pikes Peak, which is over 14,000 feet tall. We did all the touristy experiences. But for all those experiences, one thing still stands out to me. You see, the city of Colorado Springs is located in the valley at the foot of Pikes Peak. And in my cousin's neighborhood, the builder designed the subdivision to where the back of every single house, they curved roads and set up to where the back of every single house pointed towards the peak of the Great Mountain. And on every house, they built these raised decks where you could just sit there and take in the view. And I'll tell you what, I was out there every chance I got. 
I'd never really seen a mountain before this trip. I sat out there. I talked to people out there. I did devotions out there. Any free moment, I was out there. Just taking in the view. But on my last day there, I, I took my eyes off the mountain long enough to notice something that struck me. Because from my, from my elevated position on the deck, I could see the activity of quite a few people around. And what I noticed is that people who lived there would walk to their cars without once glancing up. They'd grab their newspapers without even pausing. They'd walk their dogs without even stopping and being struck by the view. It's almost like it wasn't there. So what was the difference? Why weren't they amazed by the view? Why didn't it strike them like it struck me? You know why. They'd grown accustomed to it. They'd gotten used to it. The amazing had become the ordinary. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote that if stars only came out one night a year, humans all over the world would stay up all night to look at them. Tell me, when's the last time you even stopped for 10 seconds to look at the stars? What's happened? We've gotten used to them. The amazing has become the ordinary. Listen to what C.S. Lewis once wrote. He writes, I have felt for a long time that one of the particular temptations of the maturing Christian is the danger of getting accustomed to his blessings. Like the world traveler who has been everywhere and seen everything, the maturing Christian is in danger of taking his blessings for granted and getting so accustomed to them that they fail to excite him as they once did. See, Lewis is on to something here. He speaks right into the heart of a human characteristic, but I fear this goes beyond the way that we respond to our blessings. This is a temptation that can carry itself out all the way into the manner in which we perceive God. See, this temptation to get used to things can actually alter the way we view God. It can alter the way that we respond to Him. It can change the way that we listen to Him. And it can differ or lessen the way that we interact with His Word. Tell me, why do you think, what, what do you think was one of the most likely reasons that the Ninevites had such a, an extreme reaction to God's message? I think it's because they'd never heard from God before. At least not like that. Nineveh had no prophets. They didn't have a tabernacle. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have the Torah. There was no rich history at all between them and God. And on the flip side of them are the Israelites in Jesus' day. With thousands of years of history. Stories of the exodus and the exile. They had the Torah. They had the prophets. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had the law. They had the ceremonies. For their entire existence, they had been known as God's chosen people. Basically, they had been there and done that. And by the time Jesus Christ came along, they were in a position where they felt they could actually place their faith in their own understanding of God rather than God himself. See, now they had declared themselves capable of determining what was from God and what wasn't. They kept all the sacrifices, yes, only they failed to repent. They'd recited the prayers, only they lost sight of who it was they were praying to. They had memorized the scriptures, only they completely lost their wonder for them. Now you see, this should cause us to pause and reflect because this is serious stuff for us. It's your knowledge It's your succession of understanding. It's your familiarity with Jesus Christ. It's your years of following that can actually be used against you. I mean, think of it. Think of the way that new Christians respond to the word with excitement and obedience. 
I was talking to a young adult recently who expressed a desire to be baptized, though years ago he had been baptized as a new Christian. And so we spent some time talking about how it was unnecessary, how scripture calls for one baptism, just the whole theological side of it. But when it came down to it, the heart of his request was that he had a desire to, be, to enjoy baptism as someone who fully understood its theological ramifications. In his words, as a new believer, the reason he got baptized was because he knew Jesus said to do it, so he just obeyed. And that was it. You know what I said? Yes, that is it. What more is needed? You see, I hope you never come to a point in which your understanding of God and your understanding of the scriptures is so great that you begin to trust in your understanding. Does that make sense? I hope we never lose sight of the fact that God calls us to obey even if we don't understand. I hope that even if we don't get it, even if we couldn't answer that question in Sunday school class correctly, it remains enough to say that if Jesus said to do it, I'll do it. Now I'm going to be really honest with you here. The longer that you are a Christian, the more time you spend in church, the greater you understand the Bible becomes, the more and more that you are going to be tempted to minimize or explain away the calls of God on your life. Because to us, God and His Spirit and His Word and His church and His moving in our lives become like Pike's Peak to those who live in Colorado. We just aren't struck by Him anymore. We aren't moved by him the way we once were. Though at one point in our life we could agree with the psalmist who said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. Now God is someone who we're always aware of, who we believe in, but we really take the time to relate with or recognize. Things that were once new have become ordinary. Things that were once mind-blowing have simply become affirmations of our already gathered knowledge. Things that were once powerful are just routine. Things that were once a priority have now become options. So how do we go back? How do we return to our first love? How do we allow God and his power and his love blow us away all over again? But we start by recognizing the problem. Because becoming aware of our situation is huge because because then we can actually take it to God. We can pray and ask Him to change us. But as He molds us and as He changes, there are things that we can do to stay in the flow of His Spirit. The first is this. It's really simple. Stay in the Word. The Bible is the Word of God. Stay in it. The longer you are a Christian, the more tempted you will be to minimize Scripture. The more tempted you you will be to say, well, there are lots of opinions on that. It's not really what the other preacher said. The longer you are a Christian, the more tempted you will be to think that the Bible does not address the needs of our day. There's nothing in here that directly speaks to the war in Afghanistan or rising and falling stocks or the debt ceiling or the 2012 election or or keeping up with those in your subdivision. Or so it seems. And so what you will be tempted to do is allow the scriptures to form some sort of moral code in your life but not allow it to impact every area of your life. To where you do not say the Lord's name in vain, you you do not commit adultery, you do tithe, you do not murder, you do not steal, but then you go out and chase after all the things that everything, everyone else chases after. Your priorities look strikingly similar to those in your life who claim no affiliation to Christ at all. You make decisions based on sound financial advice alone. Stay in the word. 
The word is called a sword in Ephesians, and it's called that because it's our weapon. It's our only edge. Do you understand that the word is the only reason people will listen to you? They can get affirmation anywhere else. But believe it or not, the world is longing to hear something different. It's longing to hear a voice from outside this world speaking through someone in this world. Stay in the word, envelop yourself in it, and you'll find yourself speaking and sounding a lot like Jesus or Elijah or Moses. This is a good thing. Secondly, as you stay in the word, let the word of God confront you. Do not deflect it. Do not explain it away. The longer you are a Christian, the more more you study and the more you begin to read commentaries and learn things about textual criticism and historical criticism, and you will have the tools, all the tools you need to explain away the difficult calls of God in your life. These can be useful tools, but you still need to take the time to put the commentaries down and just read the Word of God. And don't just read it, hear it. Let God's voice speak to you through it. Go slow enough that it hits home. And then lastly and biggestly, obey it. Stay in the word, let it confront you, and then obey it. Because honest to goodness, people, none of our hindrances in affecting this world for the kingdom of God flows out of our theology. Our theology is not the problem. It really isn't. It's the practice of that theology. The world doesn't have a problem with our belief in the Trinity. The problem is that we don't have marriages that look like it. We don't have churches or friendships or relationships that even begin to resemble the love that the Father has for the Son. The problem is not our view of eternity. The problem is that we live so much for the temporary. The problem is not the beliefs we hold that we should repay evil for good or that we should turn the other cheek or that we should go the second mile. The problem is that we don't do it. You see, the world simply does not care about our theology until it actually sees us live it out. The problem is not that we believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, absolute, true word of God. The problem is you just wouldn't know it if you looked at our lives. Because the longer you are a Christian, the more familiar you become, the more knowledge you attain, the more tempted you are, you you will be to see the Word of God as a consultant in your life and not the ultimate authority. All right, we get the picture. That's enough pulpit bullying. So, what do we do? What do we do in response? We repent. We do not repent as seasoned, knowledgeable, discerning, understanding, and reasoning followers of Christ. We repent like Nineveh. We repent like a child. We strip away all reliance on self. We wad up and throw away our religious resume. We stop talking about how many books we've read. We stop calling ourselves theologians. We stop being so impressed with how far we've come. And we let the word of God confront us and put us in our right place. Because it's in in the word that we find a deep question that we're going to close with today. We find in Psalm chapter 8 a question from David that we all need to ask. For it's in that psalm that David asks God this question. He says, when I consider your heavens, when I see the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, and I see everything you've set in place, David asks this, what is man that you are even mindful of him? 
David was so struck by the enormity and power and might of God, and it hit him that we don't deserve for God to even waste one thought on us. We are so inconsequential that God shouldn't even waste his time giving us a moment's thought. And yet his word says that he formed us. He knit us together, that we are his handiwork. He chose the time and place that we should live. He came for us. He taught us. He died for us. He rose again to offer us eternity. He used his spirit to call out to us, to bring us to himself. He saved us, forgave us, redeemed us, and took up residence inside of us. And he has a will and a plan for us. So how dare we lose sight of our awe and wonder for him? How dare we, we begin to rely on a shred of our intelligence more so than on the word of God? How wrong of us to form our own plans and priorities without even consulting him? How wrong of us to let the extraordinary become routine? Repent. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Repent of your self-reliance. Repent of your plans and your dreams and your strategies. Repent of any way that you've gotten used to God. And repent like a child of Nineveh. Not like a child of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have given in to the great temptation that faces people who know you. So for any shred of a way that we've become impressed by self, any area in our life that we've treated your word as a consultant and not the authority, any priorities that we've established outside of the commands of your scriptures, in any parts of our heart that just have made you ordinary, God, help us repent of those this morning. Show us how wrong that is. In response, may we come to this altar or may we stand where we are in the pews, worship you right now the way you actually deserve it. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name.
Mark Schuldup to tell you about events happening right at the church, um, but as he um, is coming, um, young adults, high school, middle school, and elementary, they're all a go tonight. Uh, there'll be no adult service, um, but everyone else, we're, we're full go, so please come back for services. Um, also, next Tuesday, there's going to be a trip to the Creation Museum. If you're interested in that, please sign up in the foyer or email the office sometime this week. Turn over to Mark now. Good morning. Um, Quick announcement regarding our Wanna Ministry, which will be starting again on September 7th. Um, if you've not seen in the bulletin and not heard, we are moving back to Wednesday night, so kind of coming home. Um, so I encourage you to meet briefly after, after the service today out in the Welcome Center. As we clear out, we'll have a quick meeting and organizational um, time. Um, hope you guys can come out and make it with that. Um, bow with me, and we'll close in a word of prayer today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Thank you for this morning, for this building and this church and these people and the chance to worship you here together. Um, as we look forward to today and to the upcoming week, um, we lift up our schools to you, Lord, as we start back into um, our academic year, um, to the administration, to the teachers, and most especially our students as they transition into a new year, Lord. Um, we also thank you for our church. Um, we lift up the Bible studies and the 
I want a youth, want a youth program and a youth ministries and adult ministries. And Lord, all the things will be um, ramping into full swing as we head to the academic year. Lord, we just ask for your blessing on those. Um, let us remain faithful to you, to your word. Let us continue to be amazed by all that you do um, for us um, in our lives here and around the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's all about you, Jesus. 